Well, a couple weeks ago, I let you know that I was going to be out of town, and the district superintendent was going to be here. How'd that go? <laughs> that's, where, that's the way it was when I left, but obviously things got changed, but I'm sure you enjoyed Shane. Shane's a good guy. I'm sure you enjoyed your time with him, but Uncle Gene's back, and let's go back to work. Uh, biblically, the bride is, is big picture thinking. The church is called the bride. And Jesus is coming back for the bride. You think about that. Bride. Is there, a most, is there a more emotional word in our life than bride? Uh, Tammy and I did it old school. I did not see her the day of the wedding. I didn't see her until she came down that aisle with her dad. Oh, I remember that moment. That's an emotional moment when you, when you see your bride. But, but the biblical significance of bride is way more than just this emotional moment. And it, it, that does raise the question, why are we called the bride? Ah, you girls are comfortable with that, but guys, you really want to be called a bride? I don't, I don't want to be a bride. In fact, Jesus is teaching about his return, the second coming of Christ, and the end of the world, using the marriage customs of those days. So, we need to understand those marriage customs to grasp what Jesus is teaching us about the end of the world and his coming. First off, before we even talk about the wedding customs, I'm not an expert on the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. But I figure that's okay. Nobody is. Oh, someone might have said, I have figured it out. Here's my advice to you. If somebody has ever told you I've completely figured out all of the clues about the second coming of Christ and therefore the end of the world, if someone comes to you with that, my advice to you is run from them. It may be too young to remember, but in 1987 there was a gigantic bestseller in the Christian world. It was called 88 Reasons Why Christ is Coming Back in 88. In 1989, sales kind of dipped. So I'll come to you straightforward. I'm not an expert, but I don't feel bad. Nobody really is. We're all trying to put all these clues together. It's not supposed to be known, so it's not known. But that does not mean that there's not clear teaching. Number one, that this world is not permanent. It can't be because Scripture is a complete book. It begins with the creation of the world. So the only way it can end is the destruction of the world for it to be a complete book. This world is not permanent. And the end of the world is ushered in by the second coming of Christ. That much we know. The time is coming when Christ will come again, not as a baby in a manger, but king of kings. Christ is coming again, not as a baby in a manger, but Lord of lords. Christ is coming again, not as a baby in a manger, but mercy will end. On that moment. And Jesus gives us a lot of insights into kind of the order of events. And he uses marriage at that time. So as as we understand marriage of that time and all those customs and traditions, it does teach us a lot about his second coming. And therefore why we're called the bride. Because the wedding customs back then all happened the exact same way. Like us. A guy gives a girl a diamond, and they're engaged, they set a date, they get married, they have a reception, they have a honeymoon. We, we, we have our traditions. But theirs was laced with traditions. And as we look at their traditions, it tells us about the end of the world. The first major event 
In the marriage tradition back then was called betrothal. This was the establishment of a covenant. It's like a contract. It's like our diamond ring, the engagement. It says a declaration that you are mine. This powerful covenant is a result of the prospective bridegroom taking the initiative. Like us, the guy goes out and buys a ring. The guy takes the initiative. But back then, he would travel from his father's house to the home of his prospective bride. There he would negotiate with the father the cost of the young woman. For there had to be a price paid for her. She wasn't involved that much right now. It's kind of like a dowry. Her family received money or her family received animals. Her family received property. This was in case of a divorce or in case of his death. She would get something. Back then, the more desirable the young woman, the more desirable the daughter, the more expensive the price. I thought on that. I thought, oh, I'm glad that tradition ended. I could no way afford Tammy. Once the established price is paid, a covenant is established. They are now bound. Now, ladies, don't get mad. Traditionally, she is owned by him. Sorry. From that moment on, she is set apart. She is consecrated or sanctified. She's exclusively the property of the coming bridegroom. He's paid for her. And the covenant symbol had now been established The bride and groom would drink from a single cup of wine. A betrothal prayer would be pronounced over them. This is all very celebratory. After the marriage covenant has been established, price paid, they drank from the the, the cup, benedict her prayer over them. Now it's established. Now the groom goes back to his own father's house. They would remain separate for a period of time. This was part of the betrothal period. This is a critical step in this whole traditional process. And by the way, it's during this betrothal period that Mary discovers she's pregnant with Jesus. But scripture even says, while she was betrothed to Joseph, the angel came to her. So this is the betrothal period. This is the separation. Joseph had already paid the dowry. Mary belongs to Joseph. This period of separation is for a couple of reasons. The bride prepares her trousseau, prepares herself for a married life. She's preparing herself to be presented to the groom. The groom has his job. He's going back to his father's house because they would bring the bride into the dad's home for a period of time. He's preparing a place for her to live. He's got he's to have a home for her. The father, not the groom, would decide when everything is ready and tell the son, Go. You're ready, the room is ready, the place is prepared. You now go and go fetch your bride. When the time is right, the groom would always go then and get his bride. Again, this getting of his bride back then. This is part of the great ceremony. This was a celebration of the entire community. We're ending the betrothal period. And here we go. He's off to take her as his bride. And even this is laced with traditions. The groom would not go alone. There would be male escorts, the best men. They would leave the father's house and there would be a torchlight procession. I would imagine if they went at night, it would be pretty, pretty cool. But the bride doesn't know he's coming. She's always expecting the groom. She's living her life now in this period of expectation. She knows sooner or later the covenant will be fulfilled because they have a covenant. He's coming sooner or later. Now, and he comes. This is also laced with stuff. The coming, when he would get close to her home, they, they would announce that he's coming. He would say, hey, I'm on my way. Him and 
and the, his, his escorts would shout and begin to shout, the groom is here, the groom is here. There would be a trumpet. Or would, trumpets were very big in so many traditions back then. A trumpet would begin to blare. The whole community would know, we got a wedding about to happen. The groom is on the way. They're coming with a shout and a trumpet. If it's at night, probably wakes everybody up. This would let the bride know, now the groom is here. And the celebration then would literally, would literally last for days as the guests would assemble. Now, this next part of the tradition is awkward for us. It's commonplace for them. The assembled guest, when he would come to his bride and she'd be veiled, when he'd come for his bride, the, the wedding parties would, escape, would escort them to a bridal chamber. Prior to the bridal chamber, no one would see her face. She's there to lift her veil to her husband She's preparing. This is the unveiling of her. And the groomsmen and bridal party would literally stand outside the bridal chamber. They would consummate the marriage that had been covenanted earlier. Now, this is awkward for us because this consummating of the marriage with two becoming one, for us, we see this as one of the most private moments of our life. This is a very private intimacy, not to be shared with everybody we know. For us, this is this. this doesn't strike us comfortably. Even more so, after they've consummated, they, the, the bridal party would shout, joy is fulfilled! Again, for us, it strikes us a little weird, doesn't it? They're announcing the great joy. Two are now one. They are bound forever. Joy is complete. The entire community celebrates their intimacy. And take a look at it. It's talked about. John chapter 3, verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth near him rejoiceth greatly because the bridegroom's voice, this is my joy therefore fulfilled. This is talking about that, this period of all these traditions. The news would pass. The marital union is complete. Intimacy complete. Two are now one, bonded forever. The intimacy complete would now usher in the community celebration. On hearing the good news, the feast would begin. They are one. The groom would, would present his bride. This bride, the veil is now lifted. It's time for this grand celebration. They would look at us and say, why do you have a reception before the honeymoon? Isn't part of the reception celebrating their oneness? We're doing it right. We're having, we're having the celebration of their intimacy of oneness and then we celebrate, because now they are one. They would look at us like we're the crazy ones. But then would begin days, literally days of celebration. In fact, Jesus' first miracle, remember? At the point of a wedding celebration, they ran out of wine and turned water into wine. The groom was presenting his bride, veil and lifted. The grand celebration for their families, they are one. Okay, that's the, kind of the timetable and the events why is Jesus using this to explain very carefully the second coming? And maybe were those traditions designed in eternity past to be a teaching tool that we understand the second coming? How is all of that stuff about Jesus' second coming and the end of the world? And therefore, why are we, his followers, called the bride? So let's rebuild it. The Jewish bridegroom took the initiative. Remember, he left his father's house to go to the home of the bride. And Jesus leaves his father's house in heaven to come to our earth. The reason he came, remember, was to establish a covenant, purchase the bride. 
Jesus establishes us. The wording again is covenant. He paid for us. He bought us. The price tag, his blood, set on a cross. Second, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11.25. Take a look. After the same manner, he also took the cup. When he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament of my blood. My covenant, key word. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye. As often you drink, do it in remembrance of me. So, the bridegroom goes to the bride's house. His dominant purpose, of course, is to buy that bride. Make a covenant. Establish the purchase price. Jesus purchased us with an enormous purchase price. His body and blood sealed in his resurrection. It's really because of this the wording is so clear. Paul wrote about it. 1 Corinthians 6.20. Take a look. For ye are bought, key word, bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You are bought. You belong to him. You were bought with a price. He claims ownership over you and me. A dowry has been paid. I belong to Jesus because he came and said, my covenant for my bride, me and you, is my blood. Notice also, at that point, remember the bride was set apart or sanctified. She's exclusive to the groom in this marriage covenant established. So we are to be sanctified, set apart. We're not to be part of the world. We belong to Christ. We are to be a holy body. That's what Ephesians 5.27 talks about here. That he might present it to himself, it is us, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that they should be holy without blemish. The kicker here, that he might present, the beginning of that verse, the word present is the exact same Greek verb that is used when the bride is being presented to her husband. We are being presented to him. That cup of wine served as the, as the symbol of the covenant. That cup of wine is the purchase price, remembering us. We always remember the price tag. Go back and give it to you one more time. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. It's a brutal verse. It's critical. After the same manner, after he took the cup, when he supped, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Excuse me, the New Testament in my blood. This is my covenant, 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 purchase price. This cup is the New Testament of my blood. Do this, ye, as often ye drink, remember me. All right, remember the series of events? The covenant price paid. She set apart. What does the groom do? He goes back to his father's house that he might prepare a place to bring her. Jesus leaves this earth to go to his father's house. And the period of separation has now begun. We're living in the period of betrothal. The bridegroom has left to prepare a place for us. He's been gone 2,000 years. We're living in betrothal. The age of the church is the age of the separation. The bride preparing ourselves for the groom to come for us. Because he has said, I, I must now go like the groom. I will go to prepare a place in my father's house. How clear can it be? John 14, 2. Jesus is speaking. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Everything in the Jewish traditions of marriage is being duplicated exactly in the life of Christ. In the end of the separation... The Jewish groom, remember, the father would say, now is the time. The Jewish groom would go and take his bride to be with him. 
And so Christ is saying, when the Father directs, I will go and end the period of separation. Because the very next verse, we read John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. You ever notice the next verse, John 14, 3? Move down one verse, take a look. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Whoa. And receive you to myself, that where I am you might be also. And receive you to myself, again is the same Greek wording, that the groom comes to receive his new bride to him in Jewish times. The Jewish groom, remember, came to the house. The groom is coming to get the bride, the procession, and escorts. When Jesus comes, he will be escorted by angelic hosts. Our role is to live in expectation. That bride, once the covenant was established, lived in expectation. The groom is coming for me. The church doesn't know when he's coming, so we live in expectation. But again, remember when they came in the ceremony, there was the shout and there was the trumpet. You ever notice 1 Thessalonians 4.16? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Every tradition of this Jewish marriage, which is laced in traditions, is going to be duplicated exactly down to the noise when he comes. And then remember what happens? They're escorted to the, to the marital chamber. And are saying, Gene, that was, that was kind of weird. Maybe you could have skipped that part. We can't. Because we talk about this with Christ. We begin to finally have an intimacy. You say, I've got intimacy now. Yeah, we do. And we don't. Let's be honest. Do you really understand everything about Jesus? I have to tell you, I spent 40 years in the ministry. I don't know. I I think sometimes I got more questions than answers. Don't you? You realize the only good thing in heaven that's missing is faith. The only good thing in heaven that's missing is faith. We don't need faith anymore. We need faith now because we don't get it all. We don't understand absolutely everything. Scripture says it's almost like looking through a windshield of your car when you need the defogger on. You could kind of see, but you can't. It says you're, you're living your life now living through a glass darkly. You don't have absolute intimacy. Back then, looking through a glass darkly was, was a steamy glass trying to look through it. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now I will know in part. But then I shall know even as I am known. He's admitting it, isn't he? Now I know in part. There's a lot of faith at play here because we don't know everything. There's a lot of faith in play. I don't know everything. I don't know of a theologian of any brains at all that says, I get it all. But then, face to face, it's like the veil is lifted for all time. Intimacy, complete. Part of the celebration of the marriage was celebrating intimacy, complete. Well, for us, it's it's going to be an intimacy of face to face. I wonder what it will be like to have complete joy in Christ. Sometimes that's warped a little bit on earth. I wonder what it will be like to totally understand in completion that level of intimacy. And remember what happened next? After the intimacy, after the veil is lifted, they came out and it was this gigantic celebration. The marriage celebration. 
This opens the door for us to the greatest celebration of all time. Remember, intimacy ushered in the celebration. Face-to-face with Jesus will usher in the celebration. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Scripture calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. It doesn't just call it supper of the Lamb. It calls it marriage supper of the Lamb. It's continuing the same story. This is a reunion of those that have gone ahead. It is seeing Jesus face-to-face. Wow. Wow. Seeing Jesus and understanding the veil is gone. Not seeing through a glass darkly, but really seeing on top of that in the marriage supper is a celebration of those that have gone ahead. I've got great friends that have died that I know that knew Christ. I have parents that I will be rejoined with. I have a father-in-law that took me in as a son. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus face to face and the ultimate reunion after the wedding The intimacy was this gigantic celebration. You are invited to this awesome celebration when the bride comes for the church. When the bridegroom comes for the church, we are the bride. So, when? When will Jesus come for the bride? When will Jesus come for the church? When will full judgment and everything be made right take place? I don't know. Frankly, while not being an expert, I suspect soon. Scripture gives us an awful lot of prophecy, most of it about the situation and condition of earth when he comes, because he comes as somewhat of a rescuer. And not being an expert, I'm not going to make any predictions. As I look at what Scripture talks about the condition and culture and Christ's coming, I suspect it may be soon. But the bridegroom had a tendency to come when people didn't expect. I think the bridegroom, Christ, will come when we really don't expect. So, be ready. The bride lived in expectation and was always prepared. There's parables about the unprepared bride and the prepared bride. We can get into it, but it it takes so much. We live prepared that we might present ourselves to our groom, Christ. How do we do that? By living kingdom. Gene, you get there no matter what. Living my life. And Christ says, forgive me of my sins, that I have him in faith. And I live my life that God receive glory. Everything else in my life is a symptom of that how I am as a husband, how you are as, as a wife, how I raise my kids, how I am at work, how my ethics, everything's a symptom. Living my life, my decisions that Christ receives glory. He calls us his bride, but he's really teaching about the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. I don't know that I can think of anything much more important for us to grasp, anything more important for us to celebrate. He loves you. He wants you. Because you're his bride. And we must present ourselves to our groom. Father, we come before you. Just looking at your word. I think those traditions were not man-made. In my own spirit, I've always felt like that was decided in eternity past. That this would be the traditions. That can help us to understand our role and your role. For when the bridegroom comes for me.
and I, the veil is lifted, and I see and understand, and I celebrate. Father, I praise you. I praise you that we've been created. You didn't need us. You're full within yourself. You are complete in yourself. I praise you that we're even created. But what a future. And if we're living our life away from you, help us to recognize this is what's important. I want to be considered part of that bride that you come for. Father, if I've sinned against you, if I've rebelled against you, forgive me. The word says your grace is made new every day. Forgive me that I might live kingdom. I want you to receive glory. And when you come, you find me an expectant, prepared bride. And I praise you. Next week, if, you are, if you're into spies, if you're, if you're into sabotage, there's a biblical event. And what they did to farmers, farmers back then were dirty, poor. It was sabotage, tares and wheat. You're saying, yeah, but what they did 2,000 years ago, do we really care? Yeah, you do. It's incredibly relevant to us today. Next week, let's look at the tares and the wheat. Let's worship together.